The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am Tyler, the person who has actually read these books, and I am joined, as always, by Greg, who has not. I have read half of one book. Huzzah! Huzzah! Uh, how are you, Tyler? <laughs> oh, he was taking a sip as I did that. He was expecting me to talk a lot. <laughs> I was expecting one sip's worth of talking. Uh, I'm doing fairly well. Uh, I have an apple cider donut, hard apple cider, and Ooh. that's a good way to podcast. So I'm All feeling right. pretty good about it. What are you drinking, Greg? Uh, I have an IPA tonight, uh, which I know goes against what you believe in, but uh, it is, I forget the name of it, but it was themed after like a space pirate's spaceship. And I judge all all the things I drink by what's on the can. So it, it's delicious. <laughs> as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, if we need to start with witty banter, describing what we drank and not <laughs> knowing the name of either drink is as good as it Pretty gets good. for me. So <laughs> why don't we then dive into something that I have not prepared you for at all, mm. uh, which is yet another ill-advised discussion of a visual artifact in a non-visual podcast or however we want to call it, <laughs> uh, which is the chapter icon on chapter 26, uh, which is Tom Marilyn's harp. And I want to make sure that we talk about this chapter icon today because we will be seeing a little bit less of Tom Marilyn's harp, as you might imagine, from the end of chapter 26. (laughs) Uh, So, Greg, uh, having had no chance to prepare for this, I'm curious just what your initial impressions are of this chapter icon, um, if anything comes to mind. And then we can obviously talk about kind of where it fits within the world and, you know, what it usually signifies when it shows up at the beginning of a chapter. Uh, sure. So again, if you share my mass market edition, we're on 414, but the, the opening page of chapter 26, uh, this one actually stands out from the rest um, in that I would say it's a little more abstract. It, it definitely, you know, evokes a harp. There's no mistaking that. But it's it's not as literal as the branches or some of the other uh, symbols have been. It's It's got this kind of funny uh, kind of abstract uh outline and then the harp lines in the middle um you know uh i think what comes to mind is you know kind of the classical lady strumming a harp type harp so like a giant one whereas this is clearly the type of harp a traveling minstrel or gleeman would have so perhaps it's just my ignorance about specific types of harp but uh you know with the circle it looks more like a guitar type structure than the kind of classical giant harp structure. Yeah, and I think you highlighted something that I think is really interesting here, uh, which is the 
the center of the icon where we have kind of the hole in the middle, which like you say, is kind of an unusual shape. I don't know whether that's a style of the instrument that's typical of a particular era or region, or if like you, I'm only familiar with one type of harp. That might just be the case. Um, but I think it's really interesting that we see the strings of the harp continue through that circle, but in an inverted color. And so mm. this was really interesting to me because the term that you had used um, when we first started looking at the chapter icons is you described them as kind of looking like woodwork or carvings. And I think this is the first place where to me it doesn't kind of have that feeling of being carved that inversion of color as it goes over the whole feels like something a little bit more artsy than carved to me at least and that was the thing that jumped out to me about this icon was a lot of the icons we've been highlighting kind of the dichotomy between light and dark and how those things have been interplaying with each other and this is just a largely light icon, right? There's some detail that's dark, the backdrop is dark, but it's not like the Dragon's Fang or anything else where we had the kind of interplay between shadow and light. So I think it's a it's an interesting icon in comparison to the others because for a variety of reasons, it does kind of stand out. I think that's a really good call. Uh, so over reading it, uh, what is interesting in light of what you just said is, is then when I think about, okay, if you're taking a, a harp with this type of construction, then the part of it that creates the song would be the strings over the whole, right? So the strings right. get strung, strummed or, you know, plucked over the whole, and that creates the resonance. That would be the notes we, we hear. And so in that regard, it is the light in the dark in this particular icon, right? So that the yeah. song, which resonates with the other set, the other chapter we read, perhaps, um, the song would be a force of light in darkness. And, you know, I'm a little less suspicious of, of Tom as I have been in previous chapters. So that kind of fits how I'm I'm reading him, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, I'm somebody who is uh, a humanities scholar. So I believe in the power of art and storytelling to be that kind of light in the dark of, you know, the gloominess of life and, and what are we going to do except tell each other stories so we forget we're going to die. Um, and that's kind of, you know, again, it's over reading it, but it's nice that with that inversion here and the whole set of choices that the actual source of the music would be uh, light, uh, primarily uh, covering the darkness. Yeah, and I think that that's really interesting in light huh, pun, ah. of the fact that what I wanted to highlight, and this actually works very well as a no spoiler kind of mm. solid dodge. Um, while this icon has so far been used to denote chapters that have Tom Marilyn in it, it is worth noting that we do also see this chapter icon occasionally pop up for other gleeman or for scenes that kind of focus on music or song or dancing. And I like that for two reasons. One is that I think it's always really interesting when we get something that is both a character icon and a thematic icon because it kind of lets you play that little game of like, wait, is this a Tom chapter or not? And especially mm. now in light of Tom having vanished mm. halfway through the book, right? Does someone else take on this icon? Does, you know, what's going on with this is I think an interesting question. But then in light of the over reading that you were doing, I also really like that we get this, um, this icon that's very much about like 
the light in the darkness of music because we've already had one chapter that really highlighted that when we had like the big dance scene five or six chapters ago when we were you know thinking about like is this you know too cheery for how dark things are or is it what they're fighting for and so I like that you know kind of visual metaphor of the light in the dark in the music I think it works really well um, that's really all I had for this chapter icon I just wanted to make sure we brought it up I think this might be the last time it appears in this book so um, making sure we come all of our bases so would this uh, here's the question we should ask at every chapter icon would this then be my tattoo when i have fallen so far in love with these books through our reading um i'm gonna go with no on the harp it's just not my vibe it's a little too abstracted um and i as you were speaking i was paying attention but i flipped back to try to see well what would be my tattoo uh so far um and i'm gonna go with the one on it was a bummer of a chapter so so chapter 23 the wolf brother has a pretty badass dog on it uh wolf uh excuse me yeah. uh but i i don't think i could pull that off right like if i rolled up my shirt sleeve and that was on my bicep people be like nah, i don't think so bro uh that so, is one of the four chapter icons that is on my bicep but hey there it is uh and then i would go i'm gonna go back to chapter 22 also from last episode i didn't really like a path chosen as a chapter but it's got a very simple kind of moonlit tree and that's a little more my speed it's it's you know a little indistinct somebody'd be like oh you know again if i'm at the beach they'd be like that guy really likes nature or he stands alone in a field or something so uh totally fits my new hampshire upbringing so i'm going with that one so far until a chapter icon displaces it uh, there are multiple tree chapter icons and you have chosen what I refer to in my head when I'm trying to distinguish them because remember I don't think in images I always <laughs> refer to that tree as sleepy time tree because the moon Aww. is so prominent behind it so uh, it, that's uh, what it, you want it reminds me of uh, and this is my dad showing um, but it's uh, it reminds me of Harold in the purple crayon right where he draws the oh, yeah. moon and follows the moon um, so yeah a classic of children's literature but and don't better, let me talk. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, and what better transition could there be into <laughs> chapter 25, the traveling people, which has nothing to do with moons or crayons. <laughs> um, so in this chapter, we pick up with Egwene, Perrin, Bella, and Elias making their way over land. Um, and Bella and Egwene seem to still be pretty tense around the wolves. They're having trouble adapting. Um, they travel for several days. Um, the one big conflict that seems to happen is Egwene kind of pushes Elias to also get in on the rotation of riding the horse, and he shuts her down pretty quickly, and in doing so, it appears that's the first moment that Egwene actually notices Elias's yellow eyes, and she has a fairly strong reaction to that. Um, they travel for a few days. Um, one just quick note here. Um, they mentioned that they travel for most of a week. A week in the Wheel of Time is 10 days, not seven. That's just a weird hmm. world building detail that might be used to might be important to know. Um, after this, they approach a copse of trees and they are approached by a number of mastiffs who at first scare them, but Elias settles them down. And very quickly, they realize that in this clearing of trees are a group of the traveling people or the Tuatha-on. Um, initially, Perrin and Egwene are kind of skeptical. They've heard stories of what they call the tinkers and how they will steal things from towns and potentially even steal children. Um, 
However, eventually they're kind of drawn in through a, a brief um, kind of ceremony where they're invited to spend the night with the group. And eventually they learn about the way of the leaf, the philosophy that these traveling people follow, which I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about. Um, and as they're discussing this, they meet in particular one young individual among the traveling people, uh, a per, uh, a boy named Aram who approaches uh, Egwene and basically is like, hey, I'm awesome. Come have dinner with me. She does. Um, and Perrin seems to be a little bit broken up about this. Um, we then hear a brief story uh, that Elias is told uh, about how some of the traveling people encountered a number of Aiel who sent a message um, about the eye of the world, which I'm sure we'll also at least briefly discuss. And then finally, we get what I think is actually a really nice and touching scene between Perrin and Egwene where they kind of reassure each other about their worries about Matt and Perrin and the, or Matt and uh, Rand and the rest of them and whether or not they're still following behind as well. Um, so it's an interesting what happens. Um, what did you kind of pull out of this or what did you think about this chapter broadly? Uh, nice to have a further expansion. You know, again, I'm, I'm still thinking about this back half of the book or the, you know, uh, roughly uh as yeah. the two towers portion and this felt to me like very much like the start of two towers where we're we pick up rohan uh pretty quickly and we get some different people in the mix and you know these are not horse lords or anything of that so uh i liked that and i was drawn you know anything that enriches the world and you you again you keep picking up different uh forces and and hope they all keep spinning uh, as a part of this um then the other thing is i was just on vacation a week ago and um one of the books I read was David Mitchell's Black Swan Green, which is um, set in, gosh, I'm going to be really bad at the, the politics of this, but I think it's 1970s Britain, and you have um, the travelers who are there, um, and I believe, you know, the preferred term is something like Romani, but in England, it's it, they they're pejoratively called pikeys right so like yeah. um brad pitt and snatch uh if, if yeah. like just to jump all over the place in references um but as i understand kind of very similar to this group right it seems like a pretty yeah. close analog where they are uh you know not really homeless but people who live in caravans and vehicles and um are generally thought kind of stereotypically to bring crime and uh disreputable forces to different cities and towns and so like in this novel i was reading the town banded together to pass laws to ban them but they you know in the action of the novel proved themselves to be like really good people um and i think that's kind of what was immediately present here it's like you know um like the romani in history or the pikes or you know we've had plenty of people like this in the united states as well they seem like a group that is naturally distrusted and marked as other as outsider that we shouldn't uh, allow them into our communities quote unquote and yet once uh they're in the mix it's like oh they seem like they're for the light and you know good people that were generous of spirit. And um, and then I guess just to, to ground that point a little more in the mythology of the book, I, the idea that they lost their song and they're traveling to find their song is really compelling. I'm like, that's awesome. That's a great uh, kind of defining characteristic for a community. So so I, I was a fan and I, I liked this as, as further enriching um, 
you know, who's around. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting to me in this section is the contrast between, like you said, in, you know, Lord of the Rings, the next place we go is we go to Rohan, we meet all these, you know, new characters and we start to build out the world. But in this sense, in the Wheel of Time, what we're getting is two groups that could not be any more different, right? We're getting Elias and the wolves who are very kind of anti-society in a way. And, you know, they're very comfortable with violence directly, mm -hmm. right? They are predators explicitly, as opposed to the traveling people who are the opposite of that. And so to me, Robert Jordan is doing such a good job of building a world where there is strict, obvious black and white, right? There is a literal dark one. There are monsters who want to eat you, but then he's seeding so much gray into this world, right? With the white cloaks and with the Tuatha on and with Elias and all of these different factions that we could classify as good, but all different degrees and types of good. And they're going to have all different types of, you know, ways of agreeing with each other. I feel like it both makes the world feel really lived in and kind of valid, right? People don't agree in like a good, bad kind of way in the real world. But I think it also just makes me really excited to see how, you know, the first time I read this, I was almost excited to see how good of a world builder Robert Jordan really is, right? Can mm -hmm. you take a world that has this many disparate ideas and make them feel cohesive? And I feel like he does a surprisingly good job of it despite the fact that we get a lot of contrast and culture, even just in these first three, 400 pages. Well, and I'm going to link a point about this chapter and the one we'll talk about uh, in the second half of this episode. Um, both of them describe a huge amount of stuff happening, quote unquote, off screen, right? It's like yeah. all of this action is continues to churn and to, to happen as we're focused in on the specific flight of the characters we know on um, this path. And so it was really remarkable um, in both to kind of sense like, oh, but there's a lot going on. It's, it's, yeah. you know, I, and to your point, I think that's what makes it feel so authentic. Like, you know, if, if you're reading a great World War II history, sure, you can read about one unit of Americans crossing France, but it's like, yeah, but all the Pacific theater, not to mention the other parts of France, not to mention, you know, blah, on and on and on. And so I think, you know, a good fantasy writer finds a way to balance that in some ways, because when the yeah. conflict feels too small, I think it gets unbelievable. Um, and, you know, again, since we're, we're making the Tolkien comparison, I think he does it too, right? That you yeah. stay kind of intimate with Frodo and Sam, but then you start to get a sense of the politics of Gondor and Rohan and, and that kind of deep history um, between those countries, states, peoples yeah. uh and then um then while the kind of plot against sauron is ticking in the background um and and i think you're right to give jordan credit because it's one of those things that when done well seems like super simple but so many fantasy books or movies do it so poorly that you know you pause in a tavern and get like uh let me tell you the tale and then get filled in like three thousand right. years of history so so this uh continues to find these little vignette moments where we get new pieces um and like i said last episode um you know sometimes i'm good about remembering those sometimes i'm not but as soon as something will bring this up again, it will click and I'll feel really good about myself, even if I've forgotten it in between. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the things that Robert Jordan does so well in building these sorts of like worlds and cultures is that he draws from the real world just enough to make things feel realistic, but he never draws from the same well so often that it feels like he's just giving you a version of Earth, right? right. He takes all of these you know, kind of cultural inputs, like you're saying from like Romani culture, what, you know, has, you know, typically stereotypically been called like gypsy culture, right? Which I know yeah. is not the way we're going to be referring to them broadly, <laughs> right? But right. Uh, when, when we talk about Romani culture, he takes that and then he combines it with what feels like a very Middle Eastern or Mediterranean style. And then when mm. he's describing the covered wagons, they feel very kind of like English Western. And so he's taking all of these kind of modern influences, which given the fact that this is the real world works really well. And he kind of puts them all together and molds that clay into a culture that feels really real because it has a bunch of lived in parts, but it's still unique to us. And I think that's what works really well about the Tinkers, right? Is that he has this way of saying, okay, these bright garish colors that remind us of one thing and this style of living that reminds us of another. And then, you know, at other points, he'll describe architecture that feels very out of place. And, you know, in this case, there's no weapons, but often he'll have, you know, Western armor and Eastern weapons or things like that. Mm. And that sort of cultural world building by pieces, I think works really, really well in, in this instance in particular. Well, and to that point, um, the way of the leaf felt very Eastern to me in the way it's described. Um, I know you and I are both uh, devotees of The Good Place um, and The yeah. Good Place finale, spoiler alert, it doesn't really give away anything, has a character describing Eastern philosophy on life and, and uses the metaphor of a wave in the ocean and how, you know, water becomes the wave and then it crashes on shore and it's no longer the wave, but the water remains as a way to kind of think about our own lives and the way th that moment where they're describing the way of the leaf and how the way of the leaf is to exist and to be a part of it but then to fall to the ground and uh foster the growth of other leaves felt very eastern um you know yeah. uh rebirth and and uh reincarnation in a sense um you know the the maintenance of the energy or of the life force as opposed to the individual which i think naturally to me kind of feels more eastern than us go go let's stab everybody westerners as the case may be so i think that's exactly right and so i would say that's the eastern point here and it's it's not a weapon like you're saying but it's it's a philosophy um and you know of there i i think you know i'm not somebody who is uh, violent, but I'm also not a pacifist. So it was interesting to me in the description of the way of the leaf, I found it so wonderful to, to get drawn into. Um, and yet when the characters are laughing at it, essentially, or very skeptical of it as yeah. an, as an extreme, I found myself like defensive of it in some ways. Cause I think, I think it's, it's such a valuable ideal, even if it is not an actual good thing that's happening <laughs> yeah and and i will say here i am not an unbiased observer of this i think in part because of my own interest in taoism and eastern religion but also because i read these books when i was young i'm more or less follow the way of the leaf um <laughs> i am a pacifist i'm not a big believer in self-defense even though i know that's not super popular i i'm a bad way of the leaf follower i do eat fish i'm not a vegan like these <laughs> wonderful people but this philosophy spoke to me i think when i was young and as i've grown mm. and and I, I i really relate to it but i've always had a really hard time with the way of the leaf 
in Wheel of Time land in a way that I actually don't in my own life, right? Because I, I live in a world that is exclusively a world of gray. And so I am very much like, look, there's no such thing as true evil in the world I live in. And so like, I'm not going to be violent because there's nothing that truly deserves it. If I was one of the traveling people, I would be totally down with being a complete pacifist <laughs> until a Trolloc showed up. Yeah. But that's, that's not the philosophy. Right. And so there's this very interesting thing about having in a world where there is pure black, a philosophy that doesn't believe in, in self-defense. Right. Because that's very different from in some way doing it in a world where there isn't a true evil that wants to eat you. Right. The, the second there's a real actual devil, pacifism gets a little iffier. <laughs> You're reminding me of a uh, a guy who went to my high school, lived in my hometown, and he became a vegetarian. I don't, he probably became a vegan based on what I'm about to say. And I remember um, his dad was talking to my dad and I was present for this conversation. And he was explaining that his son was so against violence that he, um, when mosquitoes came and started like landing on him to bite him, he would just blow them away. He would blow on them until they flew off. And, you know, again, not trying to be dismissive of a whole philosophy that people have. I was like, that is absurd. Right. But <laughs> so you're reminding me of that as a, an example, like, yeah, this is all well and good until the practicalities of a trollic come. And right. so the idea that, you know, a trollic comes to this, you know, beautiful camp and starts burning down and stabbing people, your only choice is to run away seems false. And so, so I think you're right. And, you know, um, I would like to believe I would not, you know, stab somebody who tried to stab me in the subway or something, but, right. it, but it's hard to imagine a world where you could exist purely on this way, other, especially in a, like a fantasy world with, with real dark evil. I mean, yeah, I, I was going to make a MAGA point, but I won't, I won't, uh, <laughs> I won't ground it in our time and place. I will just uh, leave it at that. Um, so, well, and, and I don't want to dismiss the first part of the chapter, if, if you have much to say, but it seems like probably the conversation at the Tinker Camp is, is the, the meat yeah. of this chapter. So um, things that stood out to me, um, many of which made your, your uh, summary, um, one of them is, uh, again, and I, I reference this, the idea that they are seeking a song to bring paradise back. I, I think that's yeah. really cool. And it already seems to me like uh, Rayan, um, doesn't really believe it's going to happen, right? Like yeah. they're still devoted to this, but he's like, yeah, it's probably not in a city. And it's like, he he's not really actively trying to do that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that it brought to mind is, is, and you can correct me as, as the more knowledgeable on these books. Uh, initially we were told that Moraine was seeking stories, yes. correct? Yeah. That she had come to two rivers seeking stories um, to learn more about the world and, and so on. And so that to me felt very resonant that, yeah. you know, power in this world, whatever it may be, seems to have some connection to knowledge. And I would put song and story. I mean, what am I doing except like describing bards in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Yep. Like whichever type of bard you are has value. Um, and that is, there's a power derived in the telling of a story or the singing of a song. And um, again, if we're talking about a fallen society, then that would be very powerful. Um, yeah. Something that comes from the age of legends or from part of society that's been lost. It makes sense to me that 
uh, different factions would be trying to seek out that knowledge as a means of, you know, bringing about paradise, bringing about a golden age, ruling over the darkness, what have you. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting to me in the context of this, thinking about just how deep time is in this discussion in this world, right? Because the, they explicitly say they're not just seeking a song that was lost at some point in the past. They're seeking a song that was lost in the breaking of the world, which pretty much implicitly means they have been seeking for 3,000 years. And just... That is incomprehensible to me, right? That would be like a society that had been looking for the same thing since early Egypt. Like, that's that's ridiculous. And so <laughs> I, I'm just always in, in this world. It's, it's so mesmerizing to me just how important the past is to this world, given how much time has past since then right it's not that it's been lost and forgotten it's that it's almost become more important as time has gone on so everything you just said but then the additional wrinkle of but there's a cycle so like they do have this kind of deep abiding knowledge that it will come back around again so yes they are kind of quixotically seeking something three thousand years old but they know it's going to come back around like there has to be these steps that get us back to the initial reset again i I think i I couldn't point to specific details off the top of my head but there's this sense that we're in the last cycle like the last spin around um which makes me think of sir gawain right there's a lot of thinking about how he's in his last cycle um so i like i think that's a part of this too like is the finding of the song the last cycle which finally breaks the cycle and then just cycle then as a word fits in like to storytelling and song right like you have a cycle of poems or a cycle of a story so um yeah and and i mean i i hate that we might just turn this podcast into a uh i think the word is hagiography of robert jordan like you know we're doing like he's so great like he's he's just so great uh or you know to be less high-minded we're doing the chris farley show like do you remember that time robert jordan that was really great um so i i i just but i do think it's a real credit that you know, somebody who's new to this, somebody who's only halfway through the first book has this kind of sense that this world is saturated both in the cycle and in the ending of the cycle, um, unless I'm terribly misguided. <laughs> and we'll find out if you're terribly misguided in 13 books. It'll be great. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah. Just around uh, the corner. <laughs> I, I think that to me, we've talked kind of about the philosophy of the Tuatha An, and we've talked kind of about the, the ceremony and the goals of that society. So to me, the last thing I wanted to pull out from this conversation was when Rayan tells Elias the story about the Aiel warriors that they were found in the desert and kind of this, this message that was sent. And so I was curious what kind of peaked your spider senses a little bit in that because obviously I am able to put the pieces together whereas it's it's a puzzle missing a lot more pieces for you yes so um a few I, I think maybe two big things that came out of there for me I, I don't want to promise a few and then only have a couple uh so one that stood out is there's a very brief moment where it appears they suggest Elias has a history with the Aes Sedai that is different than how he has presented it. So it, you know, rang a a big bell to me that as I read the moment, they were implying that he had been an Aes Sedai and had walked away. Kind of that 
type of relationship. And we knew from the last chapter that he didn't like one of the factions of the Aes Sedai. I'm already uh, blanking. Yeah, so right. we know that he killed warders, but right. warders are they serve the Aes Sedai rather than being a faction of, but yeah. Right. And so when there's kind of and they kind of trailed off and they recovered and yeah. even Perrin could say like well they're clearly hiding something in in that kind of construction there yeah um so that stood out to me as kind of a like oh there's there's more to Elias than we know and um again makes it then interesting to think about Perrin because he seems to have the wolf brother power could this be a manifestation of the one power is this a type of thing that makes you seem like a dark uh dark one or a, a false dark one and, and you need to be what's what's the word you need to be gentled gentle yes gentle yeah um and then the second one is uh there's a really rich moment i i jotted down it was on page 411 in my book just that you get name after name after name of the dark one um in some of his descriptions right oh, yeah. um and this is the the passage you said we'd probably want to unpack uh leaf blighter means to blind the eye of the world, lost one. He means to slay the great serpent, warn the people, lost one. Sight burner comes, tell them to stand ready for he who comes with the dawn, tell them, and then she died. So this is the specific message yeah. of the, uh, of from there. Um, and there's a lot there that's really interesting. I mean, leaf blighter stands out in the context of yeah. um, the way of the leaf, right? Uh, and so if the way of the leaf is pure pacifism, then this is just somebody who just burns it all, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, the the uh, the napalm bomb of the, the way of the leaf <laughs> to defoliate. Um, and I, I guess I won't say more there. I mean, that was clearly a moment and it falls into this category we've talked about before. Like, is it a prophecy? Is it a message kind of? Um, but I will say it, to me, that moment hit much more in the, oh, wow, like we're going to see something really cool here than the like, yeah, 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 you know what this is type of, of dream moment we've talked about previously. So so I really liked that part. Um, and I guess the only other note I have here in mind is just uh, to note maidens of the spear who go seeking yep. the dark one. That's super rad and also kind of sounds like Rohan, right? We had the... Yeah. the um, uh yeah the uh god What's her name? lord of the rings is uh eowyn yeah that is one. a shield maiden specifically yeah. a shield maiden not a maiden of the the spear but it it resonated and then just let me picture eowyn who i always kind of had a crush on so it's like okay good uh, yeah we're there <laughs> sounds good that works um no and to me that that section that you read out loud with like leaf blighter and the eye of the world and all of that my main note about that was just how many capital letters there were at the beginning of words in that section like everything yeah. was a proper noun and that just made me me zoom in on it a little bit i mean the one thing that i thought was really interesting is that we got just a little bit of this interesting dynamic between the Aiel and the traveling people, the Tuatha'an in this section, because we learn that most people are not able to cross the Aiel waste, but the Tuatha'an are allowed to, along with peddlers. And they said people from Carrion used to be able to, and then they say before the tree and the war. And that's mm. interesting world building, but you know, not 
this kind of nonsense to us so far. Um, but then the other thing that we learn is that the traveling people have tried to approach the Aiel before, and the Aiel more or less completely are unwilling to interact with the traveling people. They're not violent towards them. They don't stop them from traveling through their lands, which is different from a lot of other cultures, but they do not want to interact at all. And I thought that that was both really interesting world building to tell us something about how these two cultures relate to one another. But I think it's also just really telling of how important it was when one of the maidens of the spear was willing to send a message via the Tuatha'an, right? The fact mm. that they call them lost ones and are never willing to speak to them and then suddenly will rely on them in that last moment, I think tells us something about how important this message was. Uh, yes, enemy of my enemy type type uh, yeah. relationships and certainly compelling and a way for uh, Jordan to just keep that pot that's on the back burner just getting closer and closer to the boiling that when we we don't even know these cultures, we don't know these characters, but it's like, yeah. no, this is weird that they would do this. This is extreme and, and desperate measures, I think, uh, is just a really nice way to make us be like, sit up and pay attention, for lack of a better phrase for it. So it's, it's great. Um, yeah. I, and again, we don't need to just say only the great things that Robert Jordan does, right? But I think there's a talent for what could have been a very exposition dump like two or three pages and turning it into how do you build worlds and tell something about character and deliver the message at the same time. I, I think it's just really effectively done. Um, unless you had anything else to talk about in this chapter, I suggest we move on to our more plot centric chapter rather than philosophy centric in Whitebridge. Uh, the only note that is unaddressed in my notebook here uh, is just to note, I think it's actually at the very end anyway, that uh, the wolves have taken over Perrin's dreams. So he doesn't yeah. seem to be dreaming anymore about um, Biazalon, uh, but his kind of i mean he's going feral it felt like yeah. right not not necessarily in a bad sense but that as he continues as and and there's notes at the beginning of the chapter about how he can sense where the wolves are and sense you know yeah. what's going on um so it's very interesting again that it like kind of just took elias to spark this in him um maybe it's another old blood thing or something but but he certainly is uh just kind of becoming whatever it is he's meant to be with the wolves instead of uh, that um it's um, then it makes me wonder is like is uh Beazalon, uh, uh like testing them one at a time right. and and it's like oh okay this is not the one and um you know as we'll talk about i'm sure in the next chapter he seems to still be testing the other two and and there's some real question there about what they're gonna do so yeah i i think it's just it's really interesting to me to see the dynamic of all of these different powers emerging and we're just figuring out how all of them work and then we get the fun overlap of like well wait what if dreams and wolves and mm. like it's just fun to see all of that play out and the interesting things that come out of it a weird uh like rock paper scissors it's like right. but if dreams and wolves then wolf beats dream and the, yeah <laughs> this sounds like the rules to a game that i would make you guys play it's like okay there's only 26 factions guys the interactions yeah. aren't that complicated uh but huh. rather than going into that much intrigue, uh, why don't we instead head to chapter 26, Whitebridge, uh, which is a chapter where a lot happens. Um, we start with what I wrote down in my notes as Matt is real bad at flute. 
Um, basically, Tom is training Matt and Rand in the art of being a gleeman. They're doing it in order to try to entertain all of the people on the ship. And Tom basically starts to realize now that we are no longer with Moraine, now that you two are no longer under the thumbs of Aes Sedai, maybe I can talk you into going somewhere else. And so Rand uh, starts to try to get people, um, you know, to, he tries to convince them that maybe they should continue on with the ship down south to Ilion. And in the course of that, there's basically a debate about whether or not they should be waiting for Moraine and Lan and the rest of them. And Rand is pretty blindsided when Matt basically says, no, they might be dead. We should probably go. Um, at this point, they arrive in Whitebridge. It's a town with a really big, beautiful white bridge. That's kind of what it's got. Um, they make their way uh, off of the ship, but not before the captain, Bail Domon, offers them significant amounts of money to continue on to Ilion with him and, in fact, refunds their passage for their trip down. Uh, Tom, again, tries to convince them to do so, but Rand is pretty steadfast that they need to go to Tarvalon. They make their way to an inn, they gather a little bit of information, but quickly it becomes apparent that the innkeeper has already been approached, not only about the people that they are looking for, but also for Tom and Rand and Matt themselves. And he says that he has been approached by two people. First, a few days ago, a madman who eventually left town and headed east towards Camelin, and then second by a dark cloak figure who we quickly realize is a fade. Um, the group is soon dissuaded from going south to Ilion by uh, Gelb, the person who they got kicked off of a ship, making a bad name for them. Um, and as they attempt to escape town, they are confronted by a fade. Uh, Tom briefly, actually, jump back a second tom briefly tells them about his backstory and his nephew owen then they encounter a fade and tom muttering something about owen tackles the fade and seemingly is engaged in a lost battle with it as rand and matt flee so this is our first big kind of event or plot twist or whatever we want to call it how did it land for you and how did this chapter kind of set up the moment either effectively or ineffectively from your perspective uh, so I think the best place to start is I, at the very bottom of my page full of notes, wrote favorite so far. And I, I think I would uh, say, you know, a couple episodes now we were saying that roller coaster was tick, tick, ticking to the top. And this felt like pure downhill adrenaline on that roller coaster. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to be clear that I don't just mean at the end of the chapter when we get some action, but the way it's like, starting to pick up pieces all the way through and you know every choice we've made along the way is going to come in and make a difference here uh really uh was exciting and it, it was really fun to watch i think my favorite yeah. moment might have been when the uh the innkeeper just like changed on a dime yeah. it was like actually you need to finish your wine and go um i thought that was really compelling and yeah. uh exciting and um so i really you know left this kind of purely positive and really excited about where this is headed and you know it's one of those where you immediately check the next uh the heading on the next chapter like are we staying with them uh no we're not the first no. word of the next chapter is parent so uh uh and we shouldn't right i mean that's that's only going to make you keep reading and, and make you excited uh normal people who are reading this book straight through would keep reading to get to the next right. chapter i might have to wait like three weeks who knows uh so uh and i mean that positively so uh I guess, you know, I'm going to just try to take some of this chronologically because I could just gush about 
a, a lot of different places. Um, but the first thing I will say is I thought it was really cool um, and something not in Tolkien to have a city like this. Yeah. Um, actually, the comparison it felt like to me was, um, and this is such a random comparison, but in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but also some oh, of the yeah. comics, you get Nowhere, which is this this uh head of an eternal i think yeah. uh that is in space being mined and it's just like this giant mystery and you're like what they're just in the head of something like mining yeah. brains uh and that's what this felt like to me that you have this city that is sprung up around uh the white bridge and it's made of a material that can't be hurt it's not wood it's not um uh stone um and yet nobody kind of tries to explain it and it doesn't sound like they actually live necessarily on it they've just built societies or cities on either end of this bridge and they have kind of a a cultural point so um i just i think that is that was really fun to picture that was one of the few moments so far where i was like oh i can't wait to see that if the show yeah. gets us there and shows us what that looks like um yeah, well, and then I'll leave you with this and then I'll pass the baton. And then I immediately went to, again, this question of, okay, where could this be from like our society or is this just, I mean, it's it's called white bridge, so it's a white material, but it's like, is this a plastic of some kind? Is this a uh, concrete or, you know, they say it's not stone or wood, I think specifically, but it's like, there are a lot of other materials we have and could that fit into right. uh, to be a remnant of something, uh, you know, uh, because of its place and all that i couldn't think of a literal like it's not the tower bridge or it's not right. like the st louis arch or something like that <laughs> but but like thinking of well what could that be from a because because so much of this is like medieval style europe kind of yeah. that i'm picturing it's like well what could that be from a, the modern age that might fit back into that um yeah man i just like rambled a bunch but then i also want to say uh Rolling Stones, uh, you're not in Whitebridge anymore, came to mind as well, right? Uh, which is a lyric of a Rolling Stones song. <laughs> I'm not a rock guy. If there was a hip hop Whitebridge song, I'd be much more likely to know what that was. Um, I actually really like that idea of kind of a city growing up around something something ancient like this. Um, mm. and, and I actually, for a couple of years, I was teaching in central Pennsylvania. And one of the great and frustrating things about teaching at a small school in the middle of nowhere is that if a class needs to get taught, you just kind of teach it. So I ended up teaching urban economics for a couple of semesters. Um, and this just fits, right? Cities have this weird characteristic of once they're there, they pretty much always grow, but they've got to get to some, you know, like critical mass before they really catch on. And I think that this idea of a mythical unbreakable bridge as that critical mass for a small town it just it fits it makes sense it that that's how worlds work and I, and I think it it's really effective here um the other thing that I would say with with white bridge is I just think it's really interesting to think about um and it's something you mentioned too how do you build a city around something that you don't completely understand Right. It's, it's this weird thing of being reliant on a bridge that you can't manipulate and can't change. And for all you know, has a 3001 year expiration date. And just 
there, there's something this is something I've actually loved about living in Boston as opposed to living in other parts of the country right is sometimes I turn around the corner and unexpectedly I'm in front of like a 270 year old church or something right and I can't imagine living somewhere like when we were walking around like Rome or Paris and we would see 2000 year old ruins it just felt different and I feel like this is just another order of magnitude of feeling different and it's, it's, it's just a it's a really effective vignette of a city that Jordan has managed to sketch just in in kind of a couple of objects that that works really well for me. Um, sorry, now I'm just talking about how much I like this city design. That's maybe not <laughs> what we need. Well, but but it's right, because is as you know, sitting here in Boston, when we look to Europe, it's like they think we're just so young and it's just yeah. foolish. Like, you know, um, we just my wife and I just bought a new house and it's from the 1890s. And that's like a new house in a lot of parts of Britain. Um, and yet the way Boston is situated, then when the West Coast looks to us like a really old house on the West Coast is like 1950s, uh, you right. know, uh, perhaps. So I, I do think it it does feel that same way. Like, um, I too love sitting around and, you know, walking around the city rather. And you just, yeah, you stumble upon a, a courtyard that, you know, has a stone in it that's like, oh, here's, you know, uh, Ben Franklin's parents or, or what have you. And you're like, right. oh my God, like, like we are, uh, we are in history. This is history in some ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we've we've covered that, but but just to note that if all that is true, like if I were walking around Boston and I saw like a cool monument or building, and I got to say, like, that's from the age of legends, that would yep. be really amazing to get to. So that that's a fun level of that. It also resonates to me with like again, seeking the song, seeking the story, like that's the age of legends like you know yeah. it all resonates and 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 uh has a shared valence if you will well and now that i'm actually thinking about this sorry just one more <laughs> note on this sort of world building piece is this actually feels to me like something and and it's it's an example you gave but it, it feels like something that's much more out of sci-fi than traditional fantasy mm. right i feel like there's that you know the expanse does this to some degree we see this in a lot of isaac asimov stories and some of the wells stories where our technology or what we are doing in some way comes from something outside of us right and that's that's a very kind of science fiction trope of we found the ancient alien civilization and now we will use it to whatever, right? This is how Mass Effect works or 2001 or I can just yeah. keep listing things, but it's it's really unique as far as I'm aware in fantasy. And so I think it's it's a cool trick to, to bring that in to a, a genre that doesn't see it as often. Yeah. And, you know, Lord of the Rings has a lot of ruins that they walk past um that, right. that kind of filled a similar role but it's clearly fallen whereas this is no it was so great it it lasted um yeah. if you will um and i don't think game of thrones really does that um yeah there are a couple kind of things on the other continent as i recall that that have a deeper sense of time than what's in westeros um, um and may, right now we could be watching house of dragons so i i feel like <laughs> maybe we're missing something obvious because uh we're recording during the the airing time of that um fair enough so uh man so that was like a ton on like the third paragraph of the, the chapter that's uh, how this but... should work uh let's not get to the actual plot um yeah i if you don't mind jumping forward just a little bit i would <laughs> i would love to talk about the the news from the innkeeper 
before the innkeeper turns on a dime and we get that, you know, kind of terrifying sequence of him revealing who's after them. But we get some big news, right? We learn that Loghain, the false dragon, has been captured. We learn that there is a call for the great hunt for the horn going on in Ilion. Lots of things are happening in the world. And I was curious what within there... Um, it's an interesting little bit of exposition in the middle of a very plot heavy chapter. So I'm curious how that landed or if it kind of got lost in the, the crazy around it. Uh, as I suggested last chapter, I think this was really well done in that it, it is just in the background. Like this has happened. Yeah. Um, you know, actually the comparison that comes to mind for that is um, I always uh, laugh about how Lion Witch in the Wardrobe has like, I think it's literally two paragraphs that's like, and then there was a great battle and uh, the lion won. And then they did the adaptation and it's like, that's, you know, it was right after Lord of the Rings and they were trying yeah. to, and it was like half the movie was like that battle. Cause if you're doing that cinematically, you'd want to show it. So I think I naturally thought of that, like, you know, yeah. his storytelling, like, you know, if you're trying to do this on the cheap, that's fantastic, right? You have a right. barkeep tell you what happened instead of having to CG uh, the giant battle. Um, and it, you know, as a choice, it tells me that this story is much more concerned with the interpersonal and what happens to people within these systems versus the systems versus the the, the factions and the forces. Yeah. Um, and I like that. Um, whereas a movie, I might want to see the giant battle because that's super cool on an IMAX screen. Yeah. Um, I like in reading a novel, I'm like, yeah, because that gets boring so fast, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, even the best writers to me, like I start reading about a sword fight or a fist fight and I just kind of naturally skip to the end to be like, okay, who's laying on the ground? Are they dead or are they, you know, wounded or incapacitated? Right. So, um, and, and again, we saw this way back in, in uh, two rivers that they skipped the battle and showed us this. So, um, now, that being said, this, uh, to steal your phrase from a moment ago, it's a magnitude different. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, like the idea that, you know, now we have this false dragon that seemed like such a great threat is just like incapacitated and it's over and they're marching armies in. Um, to me, that was like, oh, oh, okay. So that would be the equivalent in Game of Thrones of like, yeah, we took care of the White Walkers. Like, don't worry right. about that level anymore. We're, we're just focused on who's going to sit on the throne now. And I, that naturally makes me uh, suspect that that's not true. <laughs> like, or, you know, or if the, this was truly, if Loghain was a false dragon, then there's a real dragon that they haven't identified yet. But um, so, so Loghain isn't actually been captured or is actually not the real threat, I think is what I took away from that piece of it. Uh, again, you tipped off that the next book is called The Great Hunt. So I was like, like this is just the next book like don't worry about yeah. that yet like we're, <laughs> we'll go to Ilion uh next book or or we'll worry about that 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 uh I'm talking too much so I will just say the one other thing I pulled out of that and this is maybe my ignorance but they note that there is a queen in Tarvelon and I didn't recall that there was a queen previous I, to this I I think there is a queen in Camelin oh, okay. and there is the uh, Amerlin seat in Tarvalon. Okay. But and the so, queen has an M name. 
that's kind of like yeah i was like it's close enough to moraine that i was confused but yeah okay um but is that the first mention of a queen and i believe it is should we think about this yeah and actually if you if you're willing to flip to the front of your book and take a look at the map um we know that um Loghain was captured near Lugard in Murindi, so that's kind of like middle bottom of the map. And they're okay, headed. I, so I will say I'm willing to flip to my map, but the problem is it's not in my front of the front of my book, oh. right? <laughs> like every time I want to look at the map, I get so annoyed that it's not the inset. Like oh, I'm sure okay. it is in the hardcover. Yeah. I have to go find like after the prologues. And oh, after, yeah, it's a pain in the neck. So anyway, yes. Yeah, so okay, hit me again now that I actually have it open. So uh, yes. Yeah, so the Lugard is where the battle took place, or nearby in Murindi. So that's bottom okay. middle of the map. So south of Whitebridge. Correct. Kind of yes. southeast of Whitebridge. And then they are headed towards Tarvalon, which is northeast, kind of uh, north of, if you see Carrion or Erengil, go north from there. Yeah. And so actually Camelin, where the queen is, is smack dab in the middle. It's actually a very nice stopping point. And that happens to be where our characters are headed as well at the moment, right there in Whitebridge, headed towards Camelin. And we can see there's a mark in the middle for four kings, at least on the version of the map that I have. Um, yeah. so that, it's kind of converging storyline. So even though, as you're saying, this is all happening off screen, everything is at least pointed in the same direction at this point. Really interesting to me in the way you just described that is it does seem like if I plot from Whitebridge to Camelin and then up to Tarvalon, and Lugard, all that, um, there's an interesting gap in the roads, right? That the road from Whitebridge goes to Four Kings, and then you have to go actually south on a road that heads towards Lugard before doubling back to Camelin, which I assume has to do with either a ferry or a bridge over yeah, the river. It looks like there's a river there. There is like, in my edition of the book, there's like a much thinner path. I don't know whether it's like less well-traveled or something, but there is like a path over the river, but it's it's definitely not as well-defined on my map as the other two. So yeah, there's an interesting something geographically going on there. Well, and I'm glad you pointed that out because I think mentally without looking at the map, I'd kind of assumed this was in the north because it seems like a lot of the action is happening in the north. So the fact that this is happening south of here and that there are are again these giant armies potentially down there yeah um much closer I, again the way they describe two rivers is like it's in the middle of nowhere it's like no this is all happening pretty close compared to how far we're going to tarvalon so well and that's what's so interesting to me about the two rivers we talked about this a little bit it's you know the furthest place from the bright center of the galaxy or whatever but <laughs> it is also in the middle of the map right the only reason it's so isolated is because of like bog river mountain river it's not because it's actually far from the action it's it's pretty central to a lot of the things that we've been reading about they just feel far away because of those geographical barriers and i i find the geography of this section of the book to be really interesting if you wanted to you could kind of carefully trace like where in the grass are Perrin and Egwene versus where along the road are uh, Matt and Rand. And there's it's, it's an interesting kind of travel sequence in that there's a lot of moving parts all headed towards the same place, but they can't get there by the same route. And it's it's pretty well balanced, but it, it is a little, I think, confusing sometimes if you're not staring at the map while you're reading through these sections. It's easy to not realize everyone's going the same direction because you get so many... Easts and Souths and Norths and you know it's 
it's a little tricky sometimes. Well, and, and to continue us through the chapter, we also have the presence of Ilion and the Great Hunt. And yeah. that is where the ship captain offered to, do, like, we're headed that way. And to look at that map and see how far south that is, that's basically like, let's get as far away from the trouble, which yeah. is the spirit of, of Tom wanting to do that. So so Tom in those moments really intrigued me. Um, I think I'd previously called him sus. Uh, but, uh, like, the way it's really interesting to me that he's like, I want to get as far away as possible, but that is a second order desire to, I want to stay with these kids, right? That he like, he tries to convince them to go, but to him, there's no question that he would just go, which seems like the most natural choice in the world. And so the fact that he wants to stay with them really, you know, again, I, I don't, I, I joke that he's sus, but I don't necessarily think he's sinister. I think, my most kind of generous read of his motivations is simply that he wants um, the story, right? Like yeah. if his, if he's a gleeman and his, his trade is telling stories and, you know, going to an inn and, and making coin, that seems natural that like he can tell there's a really good story unfolding here. So he would want to collect that. Um, but I think if I under, if I remember correctly, they even kind of call him out on this. They're like, then just go, dude. <laughs> like, right. like, we don't need you. And he finds a way, as always, to kind of talk his way around that to always make it, I want to stay with you, even if that puts me in harm's way. Well, and I think it's really interesting. This is both the chapter where we see Tom's kind of callous attitude and, you know, I'm in this for myself way of thinking about things come up against the first real open moment we've gotten from Tom period, right? We basically know nothing about this human other than gray hair gleaming loves gold and telling stories. And now we know he has a nephew named Owen who has, he phrased it, you could say I Sedai killed him, which is an odd phrasing in and of itself. But given that we're thinking about kind of how does Tom fit in you know is he sinister is he suspicious is he just sus without the suspicious um i think that's a really interesting nugget that we get in this chapter so how how what was your take on that story because it does go against kind of the way we viewed tom pretty much the entire book up to this point yeah well first of all owen is supposed to be an uncle not a nephew uh in my pure star wars brain Fair. Okay. <laughs> uh yeah i like I, so since this is not a video podcast tyler just started looking at his book to see if he made a mistake i think i was like <laughs> oh, what that does what? not no. <laughs> uh so uh you know it it did not stand out as prominently to me as you are describing it now, but that also could be a function of it. It's the last few chapters, the few pages of the chapter yeah. when the screaming toddler starts to win over my, I need to just read these 30 pages, like yeah. leave me alone. So it might be just poor reading skills. Um, but I do think that that combined with what happens at the very end of the chapter certainly makes him out to be more heroic. And, and if he hasn't been sinister, he's just been poorly defined. So to add some definition to that. um, And I I think I I noted at the opening of this episode and in your summary of this chapter, you kept it very open, right? That, you know, Tom seemingly dies. And, you know, as a good fantasy reader, I, 
was like, yeah, he's not dead. Like before you said that, like when I finished the chapter, it's like, you know, unless you see the body, right. Unless you have clear evidence that they're, they're dead. Um, But I will say that that ending where he was, it was like, I think, let me describe it this way. I think all this way I've been looking for him to actually commit. And it was only in that last moment that he actually committed. Like, no, I'm loyal to these boys. This is who I want to be. I'm going to sacrifice myself if if it means that um, in order to get their freedom. And so I liked that moment and, you know, in good fashion, make a character really compelling and then make it seem like you lose them, I think, uh, is a fantasy trope. (laughs) Well, and it's not just a fantasy trope. It's just like a straight up trope. I think one thing that I have, this is a, a fun game that me and Steph play when we watch television is like anytime that a like tertiary character gets a stand-up monologue, I immediately am like, they're going to die in the next episode. And it's usually correct, right? And I think (laughs) that's why I am focusing so much on the Owen monologue is because it feels like that moment where the, you know, character on Glee who finally gets a solo and then gets hit by a bus or something. I don't know. I don't watch Glee, but like that's that's what this feels like with with Tom, right? He finally gets his, his solo moment in the sun he gets close up and then he gets to god as a hero but yeah he goes out pretty quick i i like your television reference to something that's been off the air Mm, 10 15 years but i will uh i will double down on that and say it was always the rule on lost you get to the episode of the flashback for a character and you're like well that that could be the end this time around um because that's all we need to know about that character and they've they've served their purpose uh so also in this chapter i I mean I, i think Two other stray observations. Uh, the first I have is this someone crazy. Uh, yep. I feel like this has to be somebody we know, somebody who has gone crazy since we saw them. My top contenders would be Tam or, uh, and you'll have to fill in the name, the the uh, Egwene's father, the owner of the inn. Oh, Look how he struggles. That means Elvier. it's not this person. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it seems like to me the answer has to be somebody from Two Rivers. I think Two Rivers has probably continued to suffer, and this person has come to be like, oh my god, like we need to get them back just to solve this problem. Um, uh, and again, that's partially because like uh, Nynaeve is off the board, and a few other potential people we've met along the way. Um, but I feel pretty certain that we know who this is because it doesn't feel like that person was sinister. Whereas then the dark rider came the, the other one as, as the innkeeper says. Um, and I think mainly what I took from that is just that like, you know, whereas some simple narratives would drop people as we left a place this is a narrative that is not going to forget the people we met along the way and they are their story is going to continue even if we don't see it until they come back into the fold of this story um but the way the innkeeper was so unsettled i mean i i think they were primarily unsettled by the dark one but also the crazy one um was certainly a part of that and generally um just gave this this feeling of uh like get out of my my inn <laughs> like like yeah. um and and i think before that we kind of gotten the sense he was maybe a cheap innkeeper like a little manipulative yeah. but then it was like oh no this is like he's he just is afraid uh at this yeah. point well, and I think that's 
it's a moment that I've seen in film a lot, right? Where like they cut out the score and you get the dramatic moment of the character just completely turning on a dime and you get that like character actor who only has two minutes of screen time gets the wonderful moment where their face changes, right? It, it's hard. It's a hard moment to pull off on the page, I think. But this chapter, I will say, it does a really good job of ratcheting up the tension with every kind of notch of things that goes wrong for them. Because this kind of is that like, it's almost like it reminds me of a lot of bottle episodes on TV, right? Where mm -hmm. things start very happy and end absolutely insane. And you kind of wonder how you got there in 20 pages. <laughs> well, and then... Um... I, I, the last sequence just made me feel so much like a video game. I, I, I'm not a huge gamer, but I play a lot of Assassin's Creed over the years. And it felt like an Assassin's Creed mission where you're like, yeah. I got to blend in. And then as soon as it goes a little bit wrong, everything goes wrong. And <laughs> yeah. like, you're, you know, a, a beautiful Assassin's Creed mission for me is like, you, you can absolutely do it with stealth. And if you nail it, then you did this beautiful thing and you got like three extra achievements or trophies. But if it goes just a tiny bit wrong, then you lose somebody. You end up, you just kill you know, everyone. Exactly. And then it's like, Oh, I'm just going to run through this gate with 50 bodies on the ground behind <laughs> me and, and an unlimited combo uh, chain. Um, so a couple of things, these are stray observations in the context of our conversation so far. I thought it was kind of a nice, easy fix that the boat uh, captain handed back the coins. And then we find out kind of late in the chapter that he didn't hand back the right coins. Not he the was, same coins. Yeah. He was fair and he gave them the right value, but he didn't actually return the, the right coins, which just feels like trouble to me because now Moraine is going to have a harder time uh, or we'll, we'll assume they just continued on down the river perhaps, or, right. or we'll have a hard time locating them on the, the Camelin road. Um, and it was really interesting to me that we had the coin that seems like an object of hope and the dagger, which is an object of, of darkness. And so it seems that there is a way in which um, Matt is being deeply affected. And is there's a couple of references where he's like, oh, you're acting out of character. Yeah. So I think this object is taking over him and having a larger effect, making him more aggressive and, and dark. Um, but also that it is also triggering something that's following them, right? I think there's right. there's that sense that that you know the forces of that city are are following them as well. Uh, yeah. Let me pause there. Yeah, I think just <laughs> one thing that that brings up to me too is as we're thinking about kind of these different forces of darkness, right? We've got the dagger, we've got this madman, we've got what apparently is a, a fade. And I think it's really interesting that these searches don't seem to be coordinated, right? It doesn't appear as if this, you know, crazy person is, you know, in some way working with the dark friends. It almost feels as if there's like multiple groups looking for them now. And I think that that is... It, it does the same thing this chapter does, right? It just ratchets up the tension one extra level. It's no longer, we know the dark friends are after us. It's the dark friends and someone. And and I think that unknown is is a fun thing to play around with. It, it works really well. 
yeah, I don't have a specific video game example, but it does. There are those types of video games where you just like, if you run through a level belligerently, you suddenly turn around at the end and there are like five factions like <laughs> having chased yeah. you. And you're like, oh, right. I was supposed to actually think about this. The designers made it so you can't just go on a mad dash through there. Maybe that- Skyrim was like that at times. Like if you ran through a town, stabbing people like you'd have a whole bunch of problems i was just about to say i hated skyrim because often (laughs) in open world games my strategy is just sprint past scary things rather than taking Mm. the long way around and in skyrim that just really resulted in like six scary things landing on me at the same time oh shoot now i want to play skyrim uh i think that's most of what i have i have a a stray observation from early in the chapter which is just the way there's a voice of doubt in Rand's head um felt to me like it was presented like it was just him being unsure of himself but i actually think there's something more there i think the dreams are affecting him or there's you know he's been scratched by thorns and stuff it felt like there's actually a dark presence within him that is starting to have an effect um that felt that way to me well, and I would also just quickly tie that into we now have two examples of Rand laughing uncontrollably, first with mm. the white cloaks and then on the rigging of the ship. So yeah. it definitely fits into a pattern of other things going on. Yeah. And I mean, that to me also brings up Harry Potter questions, right? That, uh, gosh, I think we can spoil the end of Harry Potter, that Harry is a secret horcrux. There's a piece of right. Voldemort living in Harry. It feels like there's a piece of the Dark One alive and well in uh, in Rand. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, I, I will just note, I was excited by the idea of the Great Hunt. It was compelling that all the characters were excited and how... Um, Tom wanted to go hear the stories there and be ready to create a new cycle of myth around the new great hunt. Yeah. Um, the innkeeper was like, well, if you told great hunt stories, everybody would pay big money and spend a lot in my tavern right now. So it is really fun that in a myth, they are actively making new myths. Um, that's just yeah. a fun kind of doubling of the storytelling. I well, think that's all I have for this chapter. <laughs> well, and then I, I think I'll leave us with two quick thoughts kind of related to that. One is I think there's a very fun moment where uh, the innkeeper says, or maybe it's Bail Domon. Someone says like, you should go to Ilian. Um, they're starting this competition to tell the great hunt for the, of the great hunt for the horn. The best storyteller gets a hundred gold crowns. And Tom's reaction is almost like roll his eyes and be like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool prize. Like he is just super not impressed by it. Um, but the last thing, I think actually this is uh, how I want to end this episode other than our usual outro and what chapters are coming next in all of you, is as soon as uh, Tom hears that they are calling for a new actual great hunt for the horn, he launches into just a super quick stanza from the uh presentation the story he has told of the great hunt for the horn and he says in the last lorn fight against the fall of long night the mountains stand guard and the death shall be ward for the grave is no bar to my call and that's just this good writing yeah Oof, that is good writing good good place to leave it uh 
Uh, and we've gone long, I, I think, anyway, because we didn't well, really chit-chat. We so. have gone long because we are awesome and you want to yeah. listen to us. Uh, but <laughs> next week, actually, after having gone long for a couple of weeks in a row, we actually have a slightly shorter week with a couple mm. of chapters that are not 20, 25 pages on their own. So next week, we're going to be looking at chapter 27, Shelter from the Storm, and chapter 28, Footprints in Air. And we are going to be getting a new perspective. We do not come back to Rand and uh, I'm sorry, Rand and Matt immediately. Uh, so, Greg, I'm going to let you do our traditional outro. But what are you looking forward to, or what is one last thought you want to leave us with before we head out? I uh, so I always do my note taking and I finish reading for the the chapter, and then before I come down to record, I always write in my uh, notebook the next two chapters. And my one thought was writing shelter from the storm and footprints in air. I was like, this sounds like a great mixtape. Like (laughs) (laughs) there's something very poetic about both of those chapters. So, uh, it's been great. Uh, like I said, I think this excitement really ratcheted up for me. Um, and you had said that once it gets going, the the back half of the book really flies. And I can really feel why this has uh, lasted uh, the test of time so far. So uh, I continue to hope everybody's enjoying listening along. Um, you know, as we move into fall, uh, our lead time is going to get shorter. So we encourage you to please reach out if you have anything you want to say. Um, and anything you want to add to us. Uh, we are also at a place where if you are somebody who loves these books or you know some chapters coming up are favorites, you could absolutely reach out to us and we'd love to have a guest on to record and join the conversation uh, because uh, I still know not that much and Tyler still knows too much. So maybe you'll be <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Uh, so reach out in all the ways that the uh, that the pre-recorded versions of us will say in just a minute or two. Uh, But until then, we will look forward to seeing you through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time through the glass columns.